Welcome to the next message from Encounter Church. For more information about our church, visit us online at EncounterPGH.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. So we're going to go ahead and pick up uh, our Bible study where we left off. Um, I believe we are still in James chapter 2. I think last week... We uh, made it through, was it verse 9? Is that right? Verse 9 last week? Do you know how far you got, Kai, by chance? Verse 9. Verse 9, okay. So let's go ahead and read. I'm going to read uh, 1 through 9 so we have the context of where we, where we started from. Um, and then we'll kind of pick up from there. So James chapter 2, verse 1. Um, I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. That's CSB um, is the translation I'm reading from. My brothers and sisters... Do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and he's dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, hey, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, don't, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So I want to pause there for a second and just kind of give my own sort of little thought there. I love how Scripture, um, how the Bible is like this great equalizer. The gospel message is a great equalizer. We live in a time where I think this could never be more true. Like back when this was written, it was not uncommon for the class. I mean, the class system was still in place. You had the nobles, you had the rich, and you had the working class, and you had the poor. And there were very clear distinctions. You didn't hang out with certain people. There were places of honor for people who had money. Or I mean, think of it like where you go, like um, you could buy chairs um, somewhere with your name on it or plaques, or if you, you would pay your way into social gatherings. Not that that's unlike today, actually, but... Um, there was, it was such a, you didn't spend time with certain groups of people. And then the gospel comes along and actually now chides people for showing favoritism or for, for making distinctions among themselves. It actually says that you are judged for distinguishing yourselves. Whereas the gospel says there is no male or female. There is no husband or wife. We are all one. I love that, that it, it shows like it has nothing to do with, with what you do. Your value is based upon who you are in Jesus Christ. And so from that place, we continue. So it talks about if, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law. That law of freedom that we talked about a couple weeks ago, the law of freedom, you're convicted by it when you show favoritism. So verse 10 continues, and I'll read for a little while. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point, is guilty of breaking it all. Verse 11, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. 
So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you're still a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pause there. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For who, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. What do you think? Who's he talking to? Like, why is he bringing this point up? Like, what's he trying to, what's the point he's trying to make here? Could be talking about people who sort of make concessions within their faith where it's like, well, well, you know, I pay my tithes, but I don't, you know, uh, or I pay my tithes, I'm a good person, even though when they leave church or whatever like that, they go and murder somebody or they, right. they, they, they go and like, they fail to acknowledge other people or whatever. So it's, uh, I think, you know, particularly they're talking about the people who they do one thing, but then they don't do the other thing. You know? Yeah, which, which, you know, he talked about in James 1. He was like, you know, the, the people who, who, who say one thing and do another, who do another thing. Um, speak and act as though who are to be judged by the law of freedom. That's an interesting turn of the phrase there, right? Because we talked about the law of freedom, right? Like, so freedom gives the impression that I can do what I want. Like, that's what freedom is. is it, like, in America, people are like, last time I checked, I was living in a land of freedom, which is said in such a way as though it kind of implies that you can just do whatever you want. Like, no one should be able to tell me what I can or cannot do because it's freedom. And yet, here it says, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. How does that, how does that work? How do we define freedom? Okay. How do you define freedom? How, how, would, how would the Bible define freedom? Like, what is it saying, you think? Yeah, so, so one perspective, I'm, I'm looking at this, that a, that a biblical view of freedom is the ability to function as you were designed. Ah, God okay. designed you for a certain purpose, you know, to start a home church or to feed the poor or to care for the orphans or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He designed you for a purpose. And what sin does is that that obstruct, uh, obstructs you from fulfilling your purpose. Mm-hmm. And if we go all the way back to the garden, what was the purpose for Adam and Eve? You know, to name the animals was one of them. But then there was this garden where everything was perfect, but then there was this wilderness beyond. And, and their, their mission, in a sense, was to go conquer those lands, to go tame them, to essentially expand the garden. You know, be fruitful and multiply. And, and sin came and that just got in the way of them doing what they're supposed to be doing. And we see this with curses, like if, especially with farming, you know, you know, you know weeds are going to come up and, and all of this stuff. So are they, after the fall, are they really doing what they were designed you know, to be doing? And so then you get, when, when the Bible is saying you're, you're slaves to sin, you know, you're not free to be able to do what you were designed to do. That's actually a really good point. So to the farming concept, right? If you think about that, if the idea was for Adam and Eve to kind of tame the land and till it and, and make it a garden, 
The, the, they were free to do that because there was nothing holding them back from it. Yeah. But then because of all of their choices and the sin that, that entangles them, they are now on a daily basis contending not just with tilling, but also weeding and all of those other items that yeah. then distract them where they are not free to solely do what they yeah, were designed it, to exactly. do. It, it's, it's where they started at is they were in the garden, they were in perfection, and they were to tame the wilderness out of it. And now they're cast out of the garden. Mm -hmm. They're cast out of perfection. They're in the wilderness just trying to survive, get by. Whatever happened to this expand the garden? Right. So then back to the law of freedom. So if we are to acting as though uh, for people who are to be, a, what does it say? It says, um, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. So the law of freedom by that phrase is God's way of living, the way we were designed to live, the, the kind of people that we are supposed to be. That's the law of God is what that is. What does it mean then to speak and act as those who are judged by it? I mean, he, he just got done talking about for the person who keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. It sounds like he's, he's basically saying, you know the standard that you're called to be. You know who you are. This is all of the things here are who you are, but you're doing this over here. You know, but, and it seems like he's calling back to like, you come and you talk a good talk, but it doesn't seem as though your actions are really matching up with it. So speak and act as though you're going to be judged by that law. Like the standard, I think, there. Any other thoughts about that? For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Talk to me about that a little bit. <laughs> right. It's fine. It's fine. And so there's this kind of tendency to be like, I mean, yeah, I've done bad things, but I'm not that bad. And so you judge or like put that on to someone else. You don't show mm. them mercy. You don't show mercy to someone who's done a sin that you think is worse than your own. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's not what we're called to do. You know, like if you judge that person, you too will be judged without mercy because you have not shown mercy to that person. And I also think about Jesus's own words. His words essentially were, if you don't forgive, your father in heaven will not forgive you. And that's a very challenging in a way, confusing theologically, you know, because we kind of like, what does that mean? Like, I know that I'm forgiven. Like, how does that? But like this kind of like goes parallels with it, right? There is this idea of for judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. There seems to be something involved with like God's perspective is like the standard that God has created is that mercy is given, therefore, like mercy is received, therefore mercy must be given. Forgiveness is, is received, therefore forgiveness must be given. Like everything you receive is to be given out, like it's a flow. And so it seems to be put into that, into that space. So do you think, do you guys think that, that, that James is saying here that like, that your mercy, that, 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 I mean, is he going deep enough to say that like your salvation is at, is at risk? Do you think that's what we're saying here or? It's a pretty deep theological question. But saved, always saved. Sure. But I mean, then you've got Jesus, right? Saying if you don't forgive, then you're not forgiven. And, you know, and same thing here. Like there is no mercy for those who don't give mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
I personally don't think that it's that he's I don't think I think the question is sort of out there like chew on that. But I think it's more in in the sense of like I don't want to say a threat, but I think it's more in the sense of like understand this is serious. Like too many brothers and sisters even 2000 years ago are talking one way and acting another. Like he was talking about the rich and the poor. He was like he said, you know, the rich are dragging you into court, you know, like not any different today, right? We see the same exact thing. The rich are dragging you into court over tiny little things that they don't even need. And so he's basically saying like, this is very serious. As Christians, we are to be people of, of who look like what God created us to be. We are to be mercy givers because our, our Savior was a mercy giver. And, you know... I don't know what it looks like for God to be displeased with us in the sense of withholding mercy. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what that looks like, but it seems pretty clear. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown it. Yes, let me respond to the, the whole salvation thing. Um, and that's coming from a perspective that I think I, I, I want to introduce a, a new perspective because the whole thing of like, hey, if I'm not forgiving, if I'm not showing mercy, mm-hmm. am I risking my salvation? Sure. Um, and that is coming from the perspective of, okay, what are the personal consequences to me? Right. And I want to introduce a, a different one. And the perspective I want to introduce is that we collectively are the bride of Jesus. And, and one way of viewing his second coming is is the wedding day you know, mm-hmm. of Jesus and his bride. Are we w- ready to get married? Yes. Are we as the church ready to get married to Jesus? And if we're not being forgiving, if we're not showing mercy, if we're not doing these things, what kind of a bride are we going to be? And how does that play into the timing of the second coming? Hmm. That's interesting. That's, that, that's kind of my perspective. So... So, you know, we can, and I think this is very you know, easy to get into, especially from an American mindset, you know, what are the personal consequences to me? Do I go to heaven or do I go to hell? You know, but what about Jesus's wedding day? Mm-hmm. What about our wedding day? Are we going to be ready? Or, right. Well, that he does say that too. I mean, there's the parable of where Jesus essentially uh, teaches the parable of the, of the, the virgins and, you know, like, like there were the five, I think it was five, who had their oil and they were ready to go. And then there were the other five who didn't have any oil. And then they're like, they hear that he's coming and they go knocking on doors, begging for the oil. Mm-hmm. And by the time they finally get oil, it's too late. Yeah. So there's this, like again, that dynamic, that tie back to those spaces. I think that's what I love about scriptures. It's just like layers of layers and layers. Another aspect of it is is also like, Look at, look at what, what we are. The church in now, today, in 2020, is bearing uh, the fruit of, of what I would consider and many others would consider is this kind of behavior. Favoritism, lack of forgiveness, lack of mercy, lack of grace in society. And we are seeing the fruit of that to where we are not receiving mercy from our society because we have not shown it to them. There's much of... Um, of Christianity is ridiculed, not, not in a sense of like, like righteous persecution that we see, but like, like we've brought this upon ourselves in many ways because, of, because we have forgotten the trueness, like the centrality of the gospel in many spaces. So I think to me, 
like it's kind of like goes around also back to Jesus's words of you reap what you sow. Like what goes around comes around. If you reap in judgment instead of mercy, then you will reap if you sow in judgment, you will reap judgment rather than the other way around. And I think we're seeing that uh, personally as well as collectively as a church, not to mention perhaps, you know, uh, eschatological, mm-hmm. you know, ramifications as well. Yeah, it, I'm also thinking of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, which have some significant warnings of, yeah. of Jesus saying, hey, not, not to an ind- individual, but mm-hmm. to actually to an angel of a church representing the whole church, repent, you know, and return to your formal ways, overcome, or I'm going to come and remove the lampstand from you. Yeah. So very clearly, um, you know, James is writing this because clearly he was having, they were having issues in their, I mean, remember, these are letters written to churches in a city. So he knew that this was happening in the body and he's addressing it, you know, like Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, he was writing about like all this rampant sexuality that was happening inside the church. Like (laughs) imagine for a second, you know, like, like, uh, like, like, uh, you know, sons, you know, having affairs with their mother-in-laws, like the, like just openly in churches, like this is what was happening in the city of Corinth. And Paul is basically writing a letter going, Hey guys, this is not appropriate behavior. And here's why. And so James is doing the same thing here. He's basically saying favoritism and judgment, not mercy and, and, and talking a good game, but acting a different way. It was running rampant through the church and he's addressing, he's addressing that. And so he leads right into verse 14, which if you guys are looking on like uh, in your Bibles or like in the digital versions, there's usually sometimes in front of a paragraph, there's a big heading. And all of what we just said is about to go into this concept of faith and works. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but does not have works? Can such faith save him? He's basically asking us this question. He's like, does it matter if you go to church on Sunday morning? Does it matter if you go to a Bible study? Does it matter if you follow Jesus on Facebook? Does it matter if like any of these kinds of things, if the regular life, their regular lifestyle that is not connected in a church setting or with brothers and sisters, if when you're at work, when you're on the bus, when you're, you know, going to the grocery store, the way you pay, your way you use your money, the way you entertain yourself, all of those things, if none of that is directed by Christ, does it matter? Like, can you call yourself a Christian? Does it, does it, like how many, how many people, we are still considered a Christian nation in the United States, right? Maybe, if you want to call it that. But, but statistics show it's nominal. Most of it is nominal Christianity in that they say, yeah, I grew up Catholic or I, I'm a Christian because I was baptized as a baby or something. It has nothing to do with like how you live your life and the source of that, the transformation that takes place. And so what he's basically saying here is, is are you really? So we'll keep going. Verse 15, if a brother or a sister without clothes uh, is without clothes and lacks daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, which is kind of like, hey, I'm praying for you, right? That's kind of like what we say, like, oh man, like my my grandmother just passed away and I just lost my job and I can't pay my rent. And and we cry out to each other as brothers and sisters, right? Saying this and we all go, praying for you. It's going to be all right. That's what he's saying, right? If one of you comes in without clothes and lacks food, and says, and you just say, hey, go in peace, stay warm, 
Be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. In other words, like I'm the faith guy and, and you're the, like, you're the one who, that you're good at that. Like that, they're, they're, that happens too. I, you hear it all the time in like even in regular churches and other areas. Like, well, I'm, I'm not the kids person. Like you're good at helping the kids. Like I'm good at singing, for example, or whatever, right? It's like the vision of labor. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Senseless person. Senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless. All right, so let's pause there. What do you guys think? Like, what's pretty pretty scathing, right? I mean, he's like giving the beat down here. Personally, I love it. I, I just I think it's great how where he's even just saying like, you believe that God is one, good. Even the demons do. You know, it's like, like you're not special. Like you are not <laughs> special because even the worst of the worst know that he is who he is. You know, right. so what else you got? You know. Mark of being a Christian is not affiliating with Jesus like we affiliate with a political party. Right. How easy is it in the United States to register Democrat or register Republican? Yeah. And, and, and so, so the mark of a Christian is not just that simple. Oh, I. I said yes to Jesus. I, I, yeah. yeah I, I said yes to Jesus. Um, the mark of a Christian is a transformed life. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a sinner. Now I'm living by the Spirit, empowered to do the good works, you know, assigned by the Creator. I think what you said, Dan, too, empowered to do the good works, because that's the whole point, right? Is mm-hmm. like you can be transformed, and that's still great. But then, would you say that if you are transformed, but you're still not doing those works, you know, what is he saying here as well? There needs to be some sort of James one. What does he say? The man, the man who 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 doesn't do what the word says is like a guy who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets who he is. That's exactly this is literally repeating the same thing in a different way. He's like you like we just said the law of freedom is like you said who we are made. Like we are a new creation. That new creation, the law of freedom is the 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 prototype of what a what a Christ follower's life is. Who we are in Christ, you know? Merciful Grace-filled, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Like, that is, what, that is what the mark of a Christian is, right? That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the law of freedom. And for those of us who, who call ourselves Christians, and yet we don't exhibit those behaviors or not even trying to daily exhibit those behaviors or repent of the lack of it and then try to do that are like the people who look in the mirror, go to church on Sunday, you know, and then go about their business and forgotten all about it. This is why Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Works are not self-focused. Works are serving in community and serving others. And so I think James is also like condemning kind of like not looking outside yourself and giving of yourself to others. I I also think that we are guilty as Christians in general in America, like you kind of mentioned, of being very personally Christianity focused. I mean, I think there is an element to that that you know, saved by grace individually. 
but we focus way too much on it in our, in our nation to where we don't do things collectively or for the collective outside of us. Are you going to say something? James is using pretty strong language here, too. You know, he's saying faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Not like, you know, pitiful, you know, or weak. He's saying faith without works is dead. He said, and then, and then further down on, in verse 20, he kind of like yells, a senseless person. He's like, you are being stupid because you're thinking this way. He says, are you, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless. So in other words, it's like he's basically saying, I would rather you not say anything than say something as like a placation, like to just be like, (laughs) you know, like I'll pray for you. Like that's why I hate on like Facebook with those, like um, you change the, your Facebook thing, the picture behind it to say pray for, like when, when France was uh, the terrorist attack, you know, in the club there. I mean, I get the sentiment. I don't have any problems with the sentiment. But the idea of as though somehow me changing my Facebook post, you know, page to say pray for France or something has anything to do with it. And how many of those people, myself included, actually said a prayer for France? You know, like or Bernardino or, or down in, in Florida or, or any of those things, you know. Um, and, and because I've heard this enough, there is a guilt now, uh, I think a righteous guilt that comes when... When something happens, like uh, Puerto Rico, the hurricane last, last year, I think it was last year, the hurricane that, that like decimated half the island, or I think it was, or it was Bahamas, right? Um, and, and, and my thought was, I posted something on Facebook. Part of me feels like I have to as a pastor because it's important to do those kinds of things. But then I remembered James too. And I was like, we need to do something. And so we donated money to the Red Cross. Now, maybe that's a small thing. But I feel like that's at least better than doing nothing. Like, and that's what he's saying. He's like, he's like if you're just going to post something on Facebook, if you're just going to say, hey, I'm praying for you, and you don't actually take any kind of action, especially I'm thinking of the Old Testament where David said, I will not build this thing. I will not offer a sacrifice that costs me nothing. 
Like there is something about when you give, it should be from your heart. God loves a cheerful giver, right? You see how like this is all connected, like it's all wrapped, intertwined together. And so like Jesus, or I'm sorry, God in the Old Testament, the Father is essentially telling his people, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want you going and doing all these rituals and ceremonies. I would rather you, I would rather you give to the poor, take care of people who are, you know, dying and the oppressed. That's what he tells them. He says, until you can get your the law of freedom right, which is doing the things that I created you to do, which is, you know, like rising up against the oppressor and, and, and redeeming the prisoners and all of these types of things, I would rather you do that before you do the ceremonial stuff. And so when he's talking to us today, what is he saying? How does that apply to us? Like your faith is dead unless you have real world, like tangible work to go with it so challenging this is something that i've actually struggled with personally when i say somebody says that there's a problem yeah you know i pray for you and but then like i don't even i don't even do that you know it's <coughs> sort of like when i've been guilty of doing that every time but like you know i've been guilty of just saying the right christian thing to say but mm-hmm. then not actually even doing the thing that i'm saying that i'm going to do you know so like i've been trying very hard to at least at a minimum if I say I'm going to pray for you, I need to actually even physically pray for you. <laughs> right. You know, on top of other things that we do yeah. from there. Because, mm-hmm. like, you know, people, people like on Facebook or family or family, everybody, like, you know, every week there's always some sort of problem. And so it's going to be like, yeah, I'll pray for you, I'll pray for you. And oftentimes, you know, because of everything that's going on, it always seems like, well, that's all I'll ever do. And so it just becomes very, um, um, just as I said, like the, the thing to say. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's not, that's not an excuse to not actually pray for somebody and to actually saying, commit actually further works from there. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I, I've found is that, you know, you mentioned these, like, global or, 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 or big catastrophic things like France or, or Caribbean, whatever. I found in those kind of situations, if I'm receptive to it, God will place opportunities for me to do something practical mm. about it rather than just a Facebook pray for France. Um, uh, I actually shared one of these examples uh, last time uh, with the Tree of Life shooting. Uh, and there's a, actually a similar counter uh, Muslim example. Do you remember when there was the, the sh- uh, mosque shootings in New Zealand? Mm-hmm. Like a, a couple years, one or two years ago or something like that. And of course, you know, I felt terrible about that. You know, I was like, okay, what do I do? And and one day, as I was in my apartment building, I have a Jordanian neighbor, you know, who actually, you know, we've had so many awesome, you know, faith conversations. You know, one day he actually came up to me and said, hey, what's this thing, the New Testament, Old Testament, what is that? So I basically got to tell a Muslim all about the whole Bible. But he was moving out of my apartment building with a bunch of his friends, which I could just tell by their skin that they're probably, you know, Arabs and, and Muslims. So I just decided, hey, let's take the opportunity to, to just express sympathy to this group of, of Muslim men. And I could tell it, you know, it really touched them, you know, because them being, you know, Muslims living in the United States, especially in the post 9-11 world, there is a fear of, mm-hmm. okay, are people going to, you know, am, am I going to be safe here? But I, I just bring that up as, as a practical example of, of, and it wasn't just a, an amorphous post on Facebook. Like nobody knew except for you know, these group of men. I also just, I mean, I think that's a fantastic um, this example. I remember somewhere in James chapter 1, he, he was talking about um, 
the trials. We talked about how those trials and all these different things are like distractions that he was also talking about the rich. He said the rich spend their time like like distracted from what real true life is. And I think we're guilty of that, even though we're not rich. I mean, that's, of course, different like layers and spectrums. But but from the concept of when these disasters happen and they seem like they happen so frequently and and it's not just disasters on a global scale. There are opportunities all the time for us to get involved and to, to do different things. And yet, we are, um, we're distracted in our everyday life, you know, by the homeless person that we just walk by or, um, or a, a coworker at work who's having a really rough day and I see it out of the corner of my eye, but I have a deadline to meet, so I just don't say anything to them. Like, there are so many things that we, if we don't choose to be intentional, of, to be the kind of people that do this, which is, again, what we're talking about, being the people that God has called us to be, the people he's made us, that we are free to be, and yet we choose to kind of get involved in the weeds, if you will. And that's, I think, what he's really getting at here. And then he kind of closes with an example of Abraham about this idea, right? So in verse, um, let's see, verse 23. So he's talking about, you see that faith was active together with his works, Oh, wait, sorry. Verse 21. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? So there's this interesting story in the Old Testament where Abraham, who's the father of Judaism, right, um, that, that God calls him and says, I want you to take your one and only son. Does that sound familiar? Take your one and only son, and I want you to sacrifice him. Because that was very common at the time, was for religions to sacrifice their kids in a fire or on an altar in order to appease their God and to, and to get, yeah, Moloch, or to, to get some kind of a favor, you know, or to keep their wrath at bay, right? Moloch at the Valley of Hamon. So, so he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac up there. And at this point, Abraham is still learning who God is, right? We've talked about this before, that God is always in the business of kind of like giving you touch points, and then he like, and then he flips the script, right? So he goes up onto the mountain, and he's about to sacrifice his son, and then God says, nope. I provided a, 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 a lamb for you instead. And now we obviously see it pointing to Jesus, right? Bless you. And so that's the story in the Old Testament where this guy, Abraham, was going to do the thing that God asked him to do, even though it would cost him something great. And so here we are, verse 21. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by his works in offering his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works. And by works, his faith was made complete. It wasn't enough for him to just go, God, I believe that you will provide. It was his act of about to do the thing until God stopped him. And verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In other words, your, your faith is useless if it doesn't transform you, if it doesn't change you, if it doesn't inform the way you behave and you treat people. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? And in case you don't know that story, that's in Joshua chapter 2. I mean, these guys are Jewish guys who found Jesus, right? So in case you're wondering why we keep talking about Jewish background, it's because the Christian faith is a fulfillment of the Jewish religion, not in its own religion. So that's why these guys were Jewish people who were speaking from there what they had learned and then applying it to Christ. 
So Rahab, the prostitute, uh, protected the messengers and sent them out a different route, protecting them. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. It's interesting that, that he calls on a prostitute as an example of faith. He closes out and says that, and Rahab, by the way, is included in Jesus' genealogy. Like in, in, I think it's Matthew. I think it's Matthew. There's two genealogies. And so she is included in the genealogy. And why? All we know her of is as Rahab the prostitute. And it's showing you, again, what do we say? Like there is no distinction between people in Christ. Like there is no rich and there is no poor. There is no man. There is no woman. You are all on a level playing field as a child of God. And so what matters is not the rings on your finger or the house you live in or the neighborhood you live in. What matters is actually how you live your life and how you're transformed. So that's why the poor person who smells, who has no clothes, who, you know, who is, who is living a life of giving complete service to Jesus and has been transformed is, is, is raised up when the person who smells good, who looks nice, got great clothes, drives a great car, looks in a nice house and a wonderful job and a great family and a picket fence is like chided and pushed down because it has nothing to do with their station in life. It has everything to do with how they've been transformed. You guys have any thoughts around that? Any? Speak, lady. Yeah.
Yeah. No, I don't think so. I think um, something that came to my mind, and we'll kind of close with this, is the two things that came to my mind when you were talking, and I think that was really great insight, is that one is, is it really my money in the first place? Like, that's, no. that's a theological question, I think. But, you know, everything I have should be as a child of God is his to use, right? And so he gives it as a steward to be used by however he wants. And so the very idea that we all, I think, fall into the trap naturally of is, well, it's my money. I paid for it. I, I worked for it, all that. I want it to be used in a way that is, you know, valuable or at least feel like it's going to get some value out of it. So I get that. But it's, is it mine in the first place? And if it's not, then I'm not, and it's God's, I'm not trusting that my money is better off in his hands than it is in mine. I think that if, I'm, if I believe that, that God prompted my heart to do something, whether it's a homeless person or a family member or a friend in need of whatever, any kind of opportunity, if the Spirit of God has prompted my heart to act, I now am saying, well, God, you told me you want me to help this person, but I think I know better than you about how to use that money. That's really what we're saying. And, I was, and I, as I just, it just occurred to me how like ignorant that is. Like, you know, I complain and whine about the little curveball that comes to my life and my entire life is in an uproar. And we say, God, you know what's coming down the road. You see around the bend. You know what's happening. You, you know what's best, but not when it comes to my money. You know, 
Like not when it comes to, I have an electric bill to pay and then a family member needs a hundred dollars. Like I'm not willing to give that to you because in the moment I need that. And I don't trust that the money that you provided will, you know, will take, will, will, will go the way you need it to. So, um, and yet Jesus in his words, again, tells his disciples how to live generously, right? He says, and when you go, if somebody asks for, for like your shirt, give him the shirt and give him a coat too. Like he basically says, like, go the extra mile. So that's a challenge to us, right? This idea. So if we tie it into James chapter two, and we'll kind of close right here. If we tie it into faith and works, it almost seems like it's not just enough to do the thing. It's actually to do the thing in an extravagantly generous way. Like, and that's challenging. I mean, we see that in the book of Acts. We see that they, all the disciples were together and they sold their property and they gave everything they had so that no one would have need. Now, if that's the bar, none of us are meeting that bar, right? And so that's just incredibly challenging. And I don't think that this is meant, the scripture here is meant to make us feel judged. It's not in a sense to like make us feel shameful but it is the double-edged sword nature of the word, right? Which is to cut deep into like the actual foundational places of our life, the, the, the tendons and the sinews, it says, right? So like it's getting beyond the surface of, well, I gave $5 to the homeless guy and getting way down deep and saying, yeah, but you bought a house that's more money than this. Or you, you, you go to Starbucks, you know, 20 times a, a month and that money could be used to help an orphan or whatever. Like that's what he's essentially, it's cutting way down in there. And it's so challenging. So if you've heard this discussion today and you're not feeling like your toes hurt because you've, you know, they've been stepping on it, then you're probably not allowing the spirit of God to really challenge you because there is more that all of us could be doing that we're not. And it's not that God's going tisk tisk. I think what he's trying to say is, is I want more for you so that other people can experience. And so that the world doesn't look at the church as hypocritical and judgmental. Like we, he wants the world to see it as life-giving, but his people have to act that way. Well, and something I pulled out of this too, that I just wanted to mention was, because I, I feel like to me, it spoke to me not only to be, you know, a little bit more extravagant, but also immediate. So hmm. faith, works it's you know and he keeps talking about actions but i kept pulling out of it like now so if someone's asking for (laughs) prayer pray for them immediately if someone needs something you know give it to them immediately not because it wasn't abraham and god says i need you to sacrifice your son and abraham's like all right maybe in a month or two we'll go (laughs) or rahab when there's this battle and these guys are about to get hunted and killed it wasn't like, you know what, come back next week. I need to clean my house. I'll see if I can work it out. My, my stuff that's in here, you know, come back later. It was immediately. And I think that's part of faith with actions and with works is also doing it right now and not mm-hmm. holding off and delaying. And you have to push yourself to be like, all right, well, that means right now. I see this person right now. Or there is a need in this instant instead of, all right, well, when it suits me. Or, you know, a little bit later down the road, we have to get in a place where we're acting immediately. Even Mm -hmm. if that's, you know, someone texts you and says, I need prayer. So text back a prayer or call them a prayer. I mean, I've done that a couple times with someone like, can you just pray for me? And I'll text a prayer back because, you know, how much time is that taking for me to do that? You know, it needs to be immediate. That's good.
You're making me think of the phrase, delayed obedience is disobedience. Yeah, yeah. that's good. I have two things. I'm sorry, I've been like... We have time for one, just kidding. I'm, I'm like, I've been like <laughs> out of here, for, so I've like tried so hard to like catch up. Um, to you, I think that's really good about the immediate reaction and lack of hesitancy because I think that, at least in my case, I can only speak for myself, when I hesitate, it's because I'm trying to see if there's another option. <laughs> like, I'm hesitating, I'm like, I'll pray about it, or like, hey, I clearly know you need this thing that I do have in my ability to either do or give to you, and it's inconvenient to me to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to think about it, because I'm going to see if God's going to open literally any other option that I don't have to do that thing, or someone else will step Let in me off the hook. for me. <laughs> right. So, I think the immediacy of it is absolutely something I've gotten from this, too, is, you know, like, Trusting that, okay, it's my job to do the thing, and God's going to make a way. Right. So that's thing number one. <laughs> and thing number two is that when Claire was talking, I just had kind of like a counter. It's not a bad thing. It's not that I disagree with Claire so much. as that I, I kind of feel on the opposite end. Like, I think she makes a really great point about, you know, it's not it's not up to me to, to decide where that money's going, right? Like, because I mean, I, I totally get it. There's a massive stigma against, homeless people of, oh, I give you money and you're immediately going to go buy a new crack pipe. Like, I, I understand that that is the stigma that comes with it. But having spent so much time with homeless people, I've also realized that that if you are being immediate and you are being generous, like extravagantly generous, there's so many more ways of being generous than just being your money. Like, yeah, that's true. Like, in what I have learned is that while they're standing out there and panhandling and asking you for money, what they really need is for you to say, what do you need? What can I do for you? How can I be generous with my relationship with you? Mm. How can I be generous with my time with you? Let's go to a restaurant right now. Right. Well, and that's the <laughs> thing. I mean, that's the thing is that it's like, I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I'm very convicted by the fact that I haven't done this in years. So all of my references that I'm talking about are from five, six years ago. And that says mm. something about me and that I've allowed my own busyness to get in the way, my own life to get in the way. But it was a very life-changing experience for me to live in the South Side where I was surrounded by people all the time on every corner, and I had actual legitimate relationships with these people. And I could not change their situation. I could not give them a house. I could not give them a job. But what I could give them was my time and an ear for them to talk into and lean on. And, hey, man, I have, you know, I, I collected all the leftover cornbread from the restaurant that I work at here's a meal for you today. Here's mm. a meal for the next couple days. Like, and asking them, it's the easy thing for me is to give you my money. I don't have cash on me all the time, but like, it's time. so easy for me to just drop $5 or $20 into your little cup. What's hard for me is sitting down with you and taking time out of my day, mm. the uncomfortable moment of asking you how you got here. What do you need? That's really good So point. I completely, I mean, while I totally understand what you're saying, and I think that that's super valid, and maybe for what you struggle with is trusting where that money is going, that's the easy part for me. The easy part for me is to drop money in your cup. The hard thing for me is to sit down with you and say, what do you need? How did you get here, and how can I help you? Mm. Well, I think, and that extends not just homeless. That's any, like, any, like a friend or a coworker. It's so much easy. It's easy to give the platitude. Even money could be a platitude in a way. It's much more committed to sit down and say, hey, you know, can we get lunch? Let's just go get to lunch and learn about their background, 
How can I support you right now? You know what, what I really need, yeah, I need the money, but my gosh, like I got a kid at home. I need somebody to watch my kid while I go do this thing. Like I'll watch your kid for you or whatever, you know, that's the hard part for some, not all, but, but I think I don't want this conversation to just center around homeless yeah. people, obviously. Right. What we're really trying to say here is that any opportunity that the Lord is bringing to your attention to find a way to, to hear God saying, I want you to stand in this space, and then to just try, to not just say, I'll pray for you, like the word says, but instead to find an action that can, that can do something. So good, great discussion today, guys. I think this is really awesome. So next week, we'll start with chapter three. All right. It's been like two months and making our way through the chapters. Um, okay, well, that's, that's it. So um, we're going to... Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you call Encounter Church Home or if you'd like to partner with us to support the work that God is doing here, you can take advantage of our online giving option. Just go to EncounterGiving.com. Also, stay up to date with us throughout the week by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EncounterPGH. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.